for FMUT this week in FCCA, episode 46 for the week ending March 24, 2017, Beyond the Road to Prague edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I have a wide-ranging company, excuse me, conversation about a variety of compliance-related topics that occurred uh, over the last week. We take a look at why powerful people fail to stop bad behavior by their underlings. We take a look at the uh, policy management foobar by United Airlines, who barred barred teenage girls from boarding a flight uh, for wearing leggings, and what policy management implications and lessons you could learn from this. We take a look at Julie Tomorrow's blog post on the FCPA blog on why you shouldn't linger too long in the wrong compliance position. We consider the 50-year sentence given to the former minister of tourism in Thailand, who was the recipient of the bribes paid by Gerald and Patricia Green, who uh, were convicted of FCPA violations. Uh, We take a look at the New York State Department of Financial Services, new regulations on cybersecurity for financial services companies and what this means for compliance practitioners going forward. Uh, We take a uh, look at how you may operationalize your data to improve business performance from the compliance aspect, particularly in light of the recent Department of Justice evaluation of corporate compliance programs mandate to operationalize compliance. Finally, Jay Rosen uh, non-reviews, or non-previews, I should say, his weekend report. And we uh, consider the upcoming 50th episode where we'll have a special guest appearance. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox here for another episode of This Week in FCPA. As always, I'm joined by my cohort and co-host, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Good morning, Tom. Uh, How's the packing going? I know you're uh, getting ready for the road to Prague. Packing is completed. Uh, Waiting to record this podcast and get it posted so we can pack up the computer, then we'll be ready to roll. Great. Well, should we just jump right in? We should. So um, in terms of enforcement actions, not a lot this week. We did have one note today that a uh, uh, a individual from the great state of Texas was sentenced to uh, 18 months in jail for uh, FCPA violations. We uh, may have to touch upon that uh, next week. But we had some uh, compliance-related matters that I thought uh, maybe we could explore this week. Jay, and uh, you sent me an article uh, that uh, I thought you might uh, explain about why powerful people fail to stop bad behavior by their underlings. Yeah, uh, this is an article that was... uh pointed out to me by my colleague, Mike Canale, and it also comes from the National Business Review in New Zealand. So it just uh, really kind of shows you that there is uh, thought leadership on ethics and compliance uh, all over our globe happening on a daily basis. What's uh, interesting about this article is this is more of a a psychology control test, and um, Basically, the hypothesis is is you would think that if there are very powerful people in your organization that are committed to ethics and compliance, that when they found somebody who was amiss on their team, that they would take action. And in a couple uh, controlled experiments they set up, 
and they found out that the absolute opposite is true. And I think what led the researchers to look into this was some corporate misbehavior that's happened at places like Wells Fargo, Volkswagen, and um, SAC, the hedge fund. And what they figured out was they were going to take a look at somebody who was uh, going to be in charge of other employees and that they told them that these employees uh, were going to act ethically. And they thought that, um, you know, the person in charge, if they found somebody who wasn't acting ethically, that they would take a stand and point them out. And what actually happens is the opposite, that they associate themselves so much with the group and the success of the group that instead of uh, taking action and being a whistleblower, um, they unfortunately let the bad behavior continue. So, um, you know, this is what they are looking at is something which they call principal dissent, which is an effort to protest or change morally objectionable practice. The problem is, is that it challenges the status quo. And when the status quo is uh, challenged, then they feel that uh, the team is threatened. So it's um, it's a real good read. It's very quick, and it makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, what we just uh, found out is that uh, there's other – there is a little bit of good news. The article wraps up, and it says um, – Earlier research found that people who strongly identify with the group and are more likely to engage in principled dissent than weak identifiers as long as they recognize that it's a problem as unethical. So um, I would encourage you to give this uh, piece a read, and this uh, might give us a little bit more insight into how situations happen at larger organizations that while people may have uh, the best ethics and compliance uh, interest at heart, there is unfortunately uh, this step where uh, although they might want to take action or they might want to report, they allow the um, illicit uh, behavior to happen. And so this gives us a new way to look at that quote-unquote rogue employee. It may have been a rogue employee to start, but unfortunately there's other folks along the chain who have not uh, been able to use the principal dissent to take action. So some really good insight into not only what causes kind of a, a systematic or systemic failure, Jay, but I, I guess the thing that struck me was it actually provided some insight into how to remedy the problem. So we, we typically get a, a fair amount of commentary on it's broke, but we don't get as much commentary, perhaps, on how to fix it. So uh, an interesting uh, insight for us all. Great. You want to take um, uh, United's shining moment from last weekend and talk about that? Uh, yes. So a really interesting um, uh, policy management lesson that Matt Kelly wrote about on his blog, Radical Compliance, uh, entitled United Policy Management Lessons. Matt and I uh, did a podcast and devoted an entire podcast to this and uh, our episode, which will go up next week of Compliance Into the Weeds. But basically, uh, United, uh, four teenage girls, and or three teenage girls and one 10-year-old girl were going to board a flight with an adult. They were wearing leggings. Um, two of the... Uh, um, Two of the girls were not allowed to board the flight. Uh, the 10-year-old girl put on a skirt over her leggings, and that was uh, enough. Uh, the, 
this, of course, played out at the gate uh, with the gate agent making the decision uh, in front of uh, other passengers. It immediately went viral uh, with a tweet from one Shannon Watts who wrote, a United Gate agent isn't letting girls in leggings get on flight from Denver to Minneapolis because spandex is not allowed, question mark. Well, it turned out that there was a little bit more to the story than that, Jay. They were flying on a, um, a free pass, a some sort of a company pass that uh, worked their way down to them. It was not clear if the adult male who was wearing shorts was a company employee or not. But nevertheless, they were flying on a um, United employee pass, and United has a higher standard of conduct for those flying free on company benefit travel, and it does prohibit leggings. Um, so we had a policy. Um, my wife, whose father worked at British Airways for 20-some-odd years and who flew on those types of pass, uh, explained to me that uh, when you fly on one of those passes, you're representing the company. It's not like you or I paying customers, um, but you're actually representing the company. And so uh, at least uh, when she flew uh, in the 80s and 90s on British Airways, they were expected to dress nicely. Um, uh, I would note that did not include uh, yoga pants, leggings, or others, such similar wear. The uh, So um, the policy, uh, I think, was justifiable. Um, the problem is that in today's age of uh, media, social media, social media not only increases transparency, but it spills all of uh, corporate actions into public view, whether the company likes it or not. And as Matt said, social media accelerates the ability to judge without improving the ability to judge. For compliance and ethics officers, that means that every compliance risk is now magnified into a reputational risk. Um, so one of the things that um, we considered was the policy itself. One of the things we considered was the training that would go to a gate agent because that may be, in many uh, situations, the most public-facing contact that uh, United Airlines has. So some interesting policy uh, management lessons there. Uh, we had a, um, a little bit different direction. Julie DeMauro, our colleague, um, on the FCPA blog, wrote a piece entitled Women in Compliance Don't Linger on the Wrong Job. And although, as the title suggested, it was written about women, I really took it, Jay, as much broader, um, don't linger on the wrong job, period. And in the compliance world, that means if you are not going to receive the support either in terms of uh, resources or um, authority, uh, it may be time to... Um, um, to leave that company or move on. Um, now, Julie looked at it from the kind of evolution of compliance from an uh, administrative function uh, where, uh, unfortunately, due to sexism, women were shunted into administrative uh, assistant-type roles. Um, but uh, compliance has, has evolved to much more than that now, and uh, certainly uh, with females... Um, uh, empowerment in the workforce, and a move towards um, more equal treatment. Uh, hopefully, we've, we've moved past those days. Nevertheless, um, I think that uh, Julie's piece was uh, has some great lessons for uh, every compliance practitioner. 
Uh, also on in the FCPA blog this week was a post by Dick Casson, which talked about kind of the bookend to a very long and old FCPA case, Jay. And that involved the sad and sordid story of Gerald and Patricia Green, two Hollywood movie producers who were convicted in 2013, I believe, about um, uh, for paying bribes to the minister of Thailand to obtain the rights to the Thai uh, movie festival or film festival between 2002 and 2007. The Greens were um, convicted, given as... Uh, minor a sentence as you can get, six months uh, home arrest. Uh, but the because they went to trial and were criminally convicted under uh, U.S. statutes, they forfeited everything, and the government came and completely cleaned them out. Home, cash, savings, 401, stock, art, you name it, to the point where when they went up on appeal, they had to file an impauper appeal. So a pretty sad end to uh, a very public uh, and up till that time successful career as producers for Gerald and Patricia Crean. But the the minister they bribed, Jay, uh, she had a uh, – it was attempted – U.S. authorities attempted to extradite her to the United States because initially the Thai government was reluctant to prosecute her. That uh, extradition effort – was suspended when the Thai government indicated it would move to prosecutor, and they uh, they did. And uh, not only did they prosecute her, they gave her 50 years of prison sentence for accepting these bribes. So as the FCPA professor noted today, that's a lot of time to watch movies. So once again, we see the uh, international aspect of uh, anti-corruption enforcement uh, with the Thai government uh, enforcing um, its own internal anti-bribery laws on its government officials. So uh, kind of a, a sad bookend to a very sad case. There was um, – we could go in a little bit different direction, Jay. The, uh, Depart the New York Department of Financial Services, which it regulates financial service industries and insurance in the state of New York, on March 1 – made effective cybersecurity requirements for financial services companies. And I had the chance to review these, Jay, and I found them really interesting from the compliance practitioner perspective because they laid out a pretty concise framework to think about uh, compliance, compliance programs, risk assessments, uh, and how you uh, uh, really in, in, uh, develop and implement and enforce a compliance policy all around cybersecurity, and with the um, obviously huge amounts of cybersecurity problems that uh, we've had in the past, the uh, hacking of uh, Sony um, and the allegations around corruption, excuse me, uh, Russian hacking of the U.S. election, this is going to become more and more prominent. So some of the, uh, the things that really uh, stood out to me was that uh, it um, talked about uh, you had to have strong tone at the top. You had to have uh, a risk assessment to assess your risks. They uh, laid out multiple categories that uh, you should look at in terms of your risk assessment. I thought that was uh, interesting. The regulation requires a chief information security officer who reported directly to the board of directors and had to report in writing uh, no less than annually. They um, required annual risk assessments, and it also required um, third parties service providers to 
financial services organizations uh, had to be evaluated in terms of uh, their data protection, including identification and risk assessment of the third parties, whether the third party had minimum cybersecurity practices, um, and then uh, due diligence to evaluate the adequacy of the third party cybersecurities and periodic reassessment. So uh, lots of things that were familiar to the compliance practitioner, but also a good way for you to think about um, what's going to happen for your company in the area of cybersecurity, because although these regulations only apply to financial services companies domiciled in New York State, uh, this is coming, and we only need to, to look at Yahoo to know uh, the just dire and catastrophic impact and effects of a data breach and um, the uh, uh, within um, Yahoo, they've now, you know, pointed towards the general counsel as not having had a uh, more significant enough role. So compliance practitioners, this is coming. Uh, it's coming for you in the non-financial services industry, non-banking industry. Uh, and frankly, uh, given the uh, paucity of uh, or rather propensity for foreign governments to hack into both uh, significant um, critical infrastructure, energy, and even Sony, um, which might not seem like a high security uh, risk outside the United States or to United States interests. Uh, compliance practitioners need to familiarize themselves with these types of compliance around cyber and, and really move forward um, to, uh, to stabilize that. And then yeah, I, was, uh, I was just going to quip on two things, Tom, that, uh, you know, Every day you can turn on the TV and see the result of uh, what potential alleged hacking can do and where it can affect. So I wholeheartedly <clears throat> believe that this is happening sooner rather than later. And then I think if you just went through this article and did a, um, a find and replace and you got rid of CISO and you put in CCO or CECO, uh, to your point, this would read very much like a a document that we would be looking at for in terms of in, internal controls and best practices. So uh, uh, I, I think it's really uh, worth the time to give it a read and, uh, to your point, get ahead of the curve. So, Jay, then I want to see if we can spend a little bit of time um, talking about operationalizing your compliance program because uh, I wrote a post this week on that topic, and uh, I started thinking about, uh, how are some of the ways to to do that? How to operationalize your um, uh, compliance program? And one of the ways that struck me uh, is the following, Jay. Uh, there was a um, article in the MIT Sloan Business Management Review about companies utilizing their own data, whether that be to sell that data, whether that be to uh, wrap it around new products or services. But the thing that intrigued me the most was improving internal processes. And this is something that um, – I think many compliance practitioners have not really focused on that the data that a compliance practitioner needs to move uh, to, to really have a best practices compliance program can be operationalized within a company for a wide variety of reasons. So if you just take something like gifts, travel, and entertainment, obviously from the compliance perspective, you need to know how much money you're spending on gifts, travel, and entertainment for foreign government officials or employees of state-owned enterprises. But uh, that same data can be used a variety of ways inside of a corporation. So your accounts payable or finance or, or whatever other ever uh, function uh, handles those reimbursements to employees, they'd certainly want to have that data available to them to look for things like duplicate payments, 
um, payments that were perhaps uh, uh, based on fraud, payments that were uh, made to addresses other than the location, home locations of the employees. So, for instance, if they were sending reimbursements to uh, dummy companies or uh, to spouses of employees, um, a wide variety of fraud is engaged in in, in that uh, employee expense reimbursement. So that's something accounts payable wants to take a look at. But what intrigued me even more, Jay, was the article talked about how Microsoft used data to improve its sales cycle. So if you think about the gifts, travel, and entertainment spend on customers or potential customers, I don't think many companies look at that in terms of what is the return we're getting for the investment we're making in customer entertainment. And uh, if you took that and mapped that out for a sales cycle, uh, you might be able to determine uh customers who are more likely to uh, buy your products or services. So you might be able to forecast uh, more accurately. You might be able to deliver other resources um, based upon the information you got from the uh, gifts, travel, and entertainment. And you might be able to determine that uh, there are just frankly some customers you've spent time and money on uh, who did not engage in a sales uh, sales event with you over a multiple of years. And so that may not be a customer relationship that would at least be worth a business reimbursement. doesn't mean you couldn't have a friendship, a uh, personal friendship with that type of, of person, but that probably should not be reimbursed on the company's nickel. So um, it really intrigued me, Jay, to start thinking about how you might operationalize the data that a compliance officer would need into a wider variety of corporate disciplines. And what that means is that the chief compliance officer has some natural allies in the company that they can go to uh, to, to seek funding, uh, to have internal funding by the corporation to take a look at data. And uh, that's not something I think many uh, chief compliance officers have really considered at the forefront of how can I uh, pair up with accounts payable or how can I pair up with uh, BD or marketing to uh, buy a tool, to develop a tool, to utilize a tool, to utilize some uh, third-party provider services to help me not only make my compliance program more effective, but also uh, prevent fraud within the company and maybe even help sales cycle and sales forecasting. So it really opened up my eyes to a lot of different ways that uh, a, a corporation could operationalize your compliance program in ways that uh, may be uh, a little bit different, but it absolutely meets the Department of Justice mandate uh, to do that uh, as per the uh, 2017 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document, which was released in February, Jay. Yeah, I, th I think it's really great, uh, Tom. You, you, you did a wonderful job here of really digging in and showing the different silos. And what the, a couple of the takeaways I had was, number one, this data on gift travels and entertainment, you only needed that data once, but it could be used by three disparate parties and they could have three different aims on that, whether they're building the sales cycle or they're looking at uh, what type of compensation an individual is getting um, and I think there's really some significant upside to doing this. Uh, Microsoft was able to increase its uh, visibility into the sales cycle, and they rose from 55%, which is about you know one out of every two, up to 70%, which I think is significant. Um, the other thing that I that I really liked is the way you described the sales cycle and. 
in my blog from last week, uh, I wrote about spring training and I talked about, you know, it's never too early to get your uh, ethics and compliance work in. And some of the things is about, you know, when you're training people, you train them for the, for the right thing, but you know, you don't need to, uh, train uh, a pitcher on how to uh, hit the cutoff man because that's not the pitcher's job and and here you talk specifically about if you're looking at salespeople at the end of quarter or if you're looking at when they're getting commissions there are certain data points that can be uh you know very enlightening in terms of if there's something uh, amiss going on so i think it's a great read and if you can uh I know your uh, your new mantra is operationalize, operationalize, operationalize. So this, again, going back to uh, the latest uh, you know, recommendations coming out of uh, D.C. and Wei Chen is that if you can uh, not only use this data, but you can build it in to your different uh, business processes, you are going to be better set for the long haul. Jay, unfortunately, we've just got a few minutes left, but I was wondering if you might be able to highlight the uh, Jay Rosen Weekend Report. Uh, the Jay Rosen Weekend Report is still uh, TBD. but uh, Yeah, it's in development, but um, I, I think, uh, you know, we're at episode 46, and uh, Millie and Michaela are just dying to get on the air in episode 50, so I might... Uh, see if there's any wisdom that comes out of the mouth of nine-year-olds and uh, act upon that. <laughs> well, very good. Well, Jay, uh, as we move towards episode 50, I will greatly look forward to, to that. And uh, why don't you take us home? Yeah, let's just, uh, before I take you home, um, the reason why we have a hard stop is uh, Tom needs to get to the airport and is flying out to Prague. Uh, many of our colleagues from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics will be gathering there for the European Compliance and Ethics Institute. So uh, we look forward next week, Tom, to uh, hear what we learned in Europe and, and to uh, you know see what kind of insights you have. So uh, for the week of March 31st, 2017, uh, Tom Fox and I thank you for joining us and talking about the FCPA week that was. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week in FCPA for the week ending March 31st, 2017. Jay Rosen and I would appreciate it if you would rate this podcast as it would help our rankings and also help out, help to get the word out of about this podcast, the only weekly wrap-up of all things FCPA compliance related. Also, if you have any questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen, that's J, the letter Rosen, at affiliatedmonitors.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us next Friday for the report from Ron. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.